This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Good evening. Thank you all for coming. Good evening. I'm Julia Strongs. I teach in the Department of Political Science. I'm so happy to be able to welcome Jenna Lee Nardella back to campus. Jenna graduated from Whitworth with a degree in political science in 2004. She is the author of this book, 1,000 Wells, How an Audacious Goal of Bringing Water to Africa Taught Me to Love the World Instead of Save It. The book just came out, and she's here this evening to tell us a little bit about what she's been doing over the course of the last decade. Uh, when Jenna was a senior at Whitworth, she uh, got in touch with a, a man who became a mentor to her who was also a mentor to the band Jars of Clay. And then Jars of Clay was on campus in her senior year, and she spent time with them while they were here, and together they developed this vision for an organization called Blood Water that would focus on looking at issues of health with respect to HIV, the blood, and healthy water in Africa. Over the course of the last 11 years, the organization has raised $27 million and partnered with a number of organizations in Africa working towards these health goals. Jenna has been all over the place. She was the co-founder and CEO of this organization. Christianity Today has named her as one of 30 under 30 to watch, 30 people of faith under 30 to watch in terms of uh, doing justice in the world. Uh, President Obama asked her to pray at the 2012 Democrat National Convention. She has done a lot of important things, met a lot of important people. But the thing about coming back to your alma mater is that your faculty remember you when you were 19 years old. <laughs> and since there are so many students here tonight, I thought I would tell you a little bit about Jenna as a 19-year-old, just so you can have some hope for yourselves in the future, <laughs> right? When Jenna came to Whitworth, she was going to be a nurse. She came with a great heart for helping the poor and making a difference in the world, and she was going to do that by being a nurse. And then she discovered that she didn't like blood. So she had no idea what to do. She took a bunch of different courses, decided late in her college career, well, maybe political science. So she was a political science major and got to be a senior and had no idea what she was going to do. And we talked together, well, maybe law school, because that's always my first go-to, right? Maybe law school, but no, not law school. Then maybe graduate school, no, probably not graduate school. You know, so a senior not really knowing what to do. But the thing about Jenna is that Jenna took advantage of every opportunity. The way Jenna met this man who was a mentor to her is that she went with a faculty member to a conference and then met this person. And then a door opened when he said, Jars of Clay is coming to Whitworth. I know them. Do you want to get to know them? She cut class for a whole day and hung out with them and then talked with them about starting this vision. And when some people look at her life, they think, oh, wow, you were really lucky. You started this organization, Blood Water, and it just sort of fell into your lap. She worked so hard. All of her senior year, she focused on building this vision. Then her, the year after her senior year, she had no salary and just 
took a step out on faith, worked with the band, was sleeping in the basement of people's houses in Nashville with no salary, trying to make this thing a go. She had no idea at that point what it was going to look like 11 years later. And that's one of the things that I think is so important for all of us to keep in mind. That if you are a person of faith and you're thinking about what does it mean to be a citizen and how are you going to impact the world and what are you going to do with your life, none of us can project into the future and look backwards and say, this is, this is what I will have done. All of us just have to take a step and then say, well, I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to look at all the doors that are open, and some doors are going to close, and it might be frustrating, and then I'm going to take another step, and the same process, and then another step, and some doors might close, and some doors might open. Jenna has gone through the doors that opened for her, and I am so happy to have her back on this campus. So please help me welcome Jenna Lee Nardella. at Whitworth and to see all of your faces. And it feels like such a beautiful homecoming to um, see the fall leaves and know that you guys are, I know, studying for midterms, but fall break is just around the corner. And, um, and it's, a, it's a total gift to be able to come um, in this moment where I've written a book and I have things to share with the world. But between you and me, um, the, the source of this writing actually started when I was invited to come back and speak to a graduating class here, 2012 or 2013, and it was the first time I really had to think about what is it that I have learned over the last several years, and what is it that I would want to share back to Whitworth? And that exercise of putting these words together was the beginning of this book. And um, so in a sense, what I want to share with you tonight is just some of those stories. Um, and I hope you consider it a little bit of a love letter from me to you um, because it's really the place that has um, served and loved me and poured into me in so many ways. And um, you guys are lucky to be here at Whitworth. I will start by telling you a story about the first time that I fell down a mountain because it was unexpected, um, but most falls are. And I was 17 years old, and my friends and I were hiking the Indian Peaks Wilderness of Colorado. We reached the 13,000-foot summit, and the wind picked up, and the rain came to a downpour. The views, they were like a drug. They were stealing breath and thought and awareness. And I felt this flush of wonder as I looked across that open tundra. After cozying ourselves for a time behind the protection of a stone wall, we began our descent, and we scurried down the steep slope, and we were chatting as water beat down our brightly colored jackets. And the rocks, of course, were wet from the rain, but we were used to such conditions because lightning and thunder and hail are all part of the adventure. But suddenly, my boots slipped on the wet scree beneath me, and I fell forward. And my body picked up momentum, flipping several times downward and only stopping because I smacked into a boulder. And though my hip and shoulders throbbed and my forehead was bleeding, what I felt most intensely was the shock of my own carelessness. I had actually climbed enough mountains to know the dangers of getting too comfortable. 
But there I was, bruised and bleeding, and no longer trusting the trail beneath me. And my work in Africa and the pursuit of justice, like a mountain storm, blindsided me just when I thought I knew what I was doing. But no one tells you about the mess that comes with trying to do a good thing in the world. Or maybe they do, but you stand convinced that your story is different than theirs. See, I was 21 years old when I committed myself to this vision that included serving African women and children who walk more than five miles a day to get clean water to survive. And it included advocating for families whose immune systems were so weak from HIV that water and the diseases in that water caused mothers to bury their babies and children to bury their parents. It has included building an organization over the last 11 years that has provided clean water for more than a million people in Africa. But it has also included this consistent urge to walk away. And as an American in the millennial generation, I came of age in a culture of self-actualization and instant gratification. And I was ill-prepared for the work and patience that justice requires. Just when I thought I knew what I was doing, Africa blindsided me with the hard truth that redeeming and restoring is a lifelong commitment. And in the same way, Americans' attention span has shortened to sound bites and Facebook likes, but the work of justice requires that we dig in for the long haul and give our lives and image away on behalf of the poor and wage a long defeat on their behalf. And there's no better place to learn this lesson than the Marsabit Desert of northern Kenya, which is close to the border of Ethiopia. Its landscape is difficult to explain because it's a place of such extremes. It's not just hot, it's oppressively hot. It's not just dry, it's earth-crumblingly dry. And it's not just poor, it's desperately poor. And as you fly above the region, the land below looks like the surface of the moon. You see twisters of sand and dust and heat dancing across this barren landscape. You feel thirsty just looking at the vast desert. And the first time I landed, we were on a dirt airstrip, and a man named Yegon met us. And Yegon and his team were committed to bringing health and clean water to communities that had no such access. The inhabitants of this desert were a nomadic people who traveled for days to find remnants of vegetation for their animals to eat and to live. And one need only be in Marsabit for a day to feel the dramatic effects of a water crisis. Welcome to the end of Africa, Yegon had told us as we looked across that sandy plain. And we saw no sign of life from the vantage point of the small airstrip. And it did look as if just past the horizon would be a ledge that marked not just the edge of Africa, but the end of the world. But Yegon had a vision and he wanted us to see it. And we traveled for hours across the moonlike terrain until we found ourselves in remote schools where a hundred children gathered to learn among an expanse of twisters and dust. I covered my head and face with a light scarf to keep the pelleting sand off my skin and out of my hair. Herds of camels and donkeys and goats roamed the area as the baking sun crippled my skin. Yegon introduced us to the teachers he had been working with on the plans for rainwater catchment tanks. And the vision was bold, 
but we were bound together in the conviction that the plans were possible to execute, and we could see real change in a place that most of the world had virtually ignored. So the next year, I returned to the desert of Marsabit and traveled for hours with Yegon to witness the craftsmanship of the school's new rainwater catchment tanks, the newly constructed earthen dam for the animals, and this impressive engineering of the deep well boreholes that were drilled successfully in one of Earth's harshest environments. The vision that Yegon had laid out for us and that we had funded had taken shape, but there was one problem, no water. When I turned the new tap connected to the storage tanks, I felt only hot air. And I walked up the hill to view the edge of the dam, and what was supposed to be filled with water for animals was a cracked prune of a landscape. A goat lay on its side in the dusty sand, dead from dehydration. The new borehole was nearly dry, eking out an insufficient stream of water that we had designed to serve hundreds of people and their 7,000 animals. And instead, scattered herds of camels and donkeys stood with their owners, waiting their turn to drink from the dribble of the trough. Marsabit had been suffering a severe and unexpected drought for more than a year. So the water storage had run out nearly six months before. And mothers, fathers, babies, camels, donkeys, and goats were continuing to fight the long defeat of a life with no water, which doesn't leave much life after all. And as I stood under the merciless sun, it became clear to me that the laws of return on investment don't apply in many places around the world. The unjust forces of nature can cripple even the strongest, most capable person, community, or ideal. In this case, all the persistence, money, and work that the people of Marsabit and Bloodwater had done over the years came to nothing tangible. People and animals were still dying from a drought that mocked our best intentions. And as Americans, many of us assume that if something needs to be done, there is a way to do it. But sometimes human capability meets its threshold, and we learn the truth about what we can and cannot do. In Marsivit, we can partner with the best organization in the region. We can raise all the money we need, mobilize the communities with excellent methods, train in best practices of hygiene, build solid latrines, and construct foolproof rain tanks. But we cannot make the rain. And I hadn't considered what would happen if a project failed or if clouds refused to shower on certain parts of the earth. So far, I'd only experienced the windfall of blessing, and I suppose I expected it to stay with me. But Marsabit is a place that will make you question many truths you thought you understood about the world. How hard work pays off. How hope comes through in the end. How God is merciful. And my convictions began to crumble like dirt beneath my feet. I thought I could change Africa until I realized that I could not make the rain come. Marsabit was like the mountain of my youth. I wasn't seasoned enough to expect the stumbling and the fumbling, the head over head falling, the stillness after impact. And the American church might be experiencing that same kind of surprise, 
especially because it's been like a millennial in its attention span for justice. We passed around a documentary about children affected by a war in Uganda. We gave up our birthdays for clean water. We marked red X's on our hands, and we bought shoes that gave a pair away to another. We made a stand and started our own nonprofits. We self-actualized through sharing our voices on blogs, and we mobilized resources. There was momentum, and we could feel it, the sense that Christians had actually caught on to the fact that Jesus cared about the poor and the marginalized. Christians were the ones who put fear and judgment aside and took up mercy and generosity by pushing the U.S. government to do something about the AIDS crisis in Africa. Christians mobilized support for the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, which is now sustaining the lives of millions of HIV-positive men, women, and children around the globe. That was a 180-degree turn from a Barna poll in 2001 that stated that only 3% of evangelical Americans would be willing to help someone with HIV. But then the red campaign faded in its coolness, and the work of doing good got inconvenient, and other things caught our attention. And my question today is, will the church dig in for the long haul, give its life and image away, and be willing to wage a long defeat on behalf of the poor. Trust me, the glitz of standing for a cause will wear off. <laughs> and maybe the leaders of the organizations we've followed will disappoint us. Maybe we find out that doing good is messy and more complex than we want. The problems more convoluted, the solutions less clear than our slogans suggest. Or we face our own marsibits where the rain just won't come. And we grow weary and we lose sight of the vision. We even question whether justice and mercy are worth the pursuit. We have an urge to grab onto the next big thing, to start something else. You see, we need to feel the gratification of our goodwill and we want to see its immediate results. But the world is going to move faster and continue to tempt us to abandon the disciplines of patience and presence and prayer, steadfastness, relationship, consistency, faithfulness, hope. Smartwatches and quicker turnarounds and the speed of consumption fool us into thinking that redemption is fast. But I think there are still truths about the world that we ought not ignore amidst the sheen of the immediate. If you look at the amount of time it takes in Africa for corn to grow, or for a girl to walk with her bucket to the nearest watering hole, you find that the pace of life and the growth of people follow the pace and growth of the land. Or if you're witness to the achievement of a community coming together to build its own rainwater catchment tank, only to be followed by an unexpected season of drought, you begin to expect a slow-paced and uneven path in all things. And as we continue to address the world's injustices, I think that path is going to be the same. In Kenya, they say pole pole, or slowly by slowly. In Zambia, they say panono panono, brick by brick. And they're not referring to just speed or pace, but also that uneven up and down, three steps forward, two steps back nature of both work and life amidst challenging circumstances and broken relationships and deep-set cultural constraints. There is never an expectation that life will go smoothly or that you will reach your destination with expediency. Slowly by slowly expects ebb and flow. 
It sees healthcare happening in the midst of overwhelming sickness. It brings 10,000 liters of water, even if 100,000 are needed. Brick by brick, there are hospital wings and fresh water wells, and yet millions more women who walk miles every day for water. Slowly by slowly, we expect to wage the long defeat and seek after the new heavens in the midst of a nearly blinding brokenness. And let us remember that the work of justice is a long-suffering narrative, both for the individuals who are today enduring the brunt of the world's worst injustices and for the corporate body of Christians who are committed to moving the needle. Martin Luther King Jr. rightfully noted, human progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. Every step toward the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. It requires the tireless exertions and passionate concern of dedicated individuals. And he would know. And as I look at my own life, which is saturated by expectations of expediency, of ease, and self-actualization, I tremble at Dr. King's words because it means that the pursuit of justice will cost something significant and that it will not be easy. As the idealism fades, do we have what it takes to stay with it? As the world moves on to other flashy invitations, do we as Christians have the wherewithal to stick with the causes we said we cared about five years ago? Do we have the will to sustain slowly by slowly commitments into the next five years? I love the call in Isaiah 58 because it delivers an ambitious mandate that weighs heavy on those of us who seek to examine issues of justice and poverty and faith and conviction. Isaiah says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and undo the thongs of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? The call is to loose the bonds of the injustice, undo the thongs of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house, clothe the naked. But let me be a witness that these are not things that happen all at once. They're not once and done actions that you check off like a task list and move on to the next new thing. No, the challenge is to wake up each day and live out the actions of Isaiah slowly by slowly as you faithfully enter into the world. They do not require the best technology, a fancy degree, or even the promise of shining results. But they do require the commitment to be present and to be consistent with the people and places for the long haul. Loose, undo, share, bring, clothe. Our pursuit of justice ought not be a sprint. And real change happens in stops and starts. Accomplishment mingles with failure. And we need to give ourselves permission that we will experience both. I had once thought that hope was easy. Belief in the good came easily to me, and now I realize it was passion that came easily. When I was a young adult, my passions were a gift. They propelled me forward. But at some point, the wind disappears, and hope must take over while you wait, expectant in still waters. 
It was the year of the Marsabit drought when I personally hit a long season of windless sailing. The economy had just crashed and funding commitments faltered. And I had just discovered that one of our African partners had given in to the temptation of mishandling our donor funds. And an American volunteer of ours named Brooke was killed in a car accident on the road from Kenya to Tanzania. And I was but 27 years old trying to figure it all out. Through the grief and the pressure and the disillusionment, I was wrestling with the continued loss of that idealism that had once fueled me, and more importantly, that had fueled my beliefs. I'm not sure I believe in as much as I used to, is what I told my longtime mentor, Steve Garber, as we walked along the Tidal Basin in West Potomac Park in DC. It was April, and the canopies of blossoming Yoshino trees were overhead, and crowds of tourists surrounded us, and I confessed to Steve a fountain of doubts, disappointment, and disillusionment. And I admitted my desire to quit, not just Bloodwater, but maybe the church too. And just as he has since the first time I introduced myself to him as a college student, Steve listened, pondered my questions, and offered abounding wisdom. The world is a tough place to live, Jenna, he said as he squeezed his arm around me. But there is nowhere else to live. It was as straightforward an answer as anyone had given me. And I remembered the evening my husband James and I sat around the living room with a dozen or so friends from church soon after Brooke had died. And the small group leader was facilitating a discussion around a Bible passage, and we were expected to chime in with answers. And a lot of smart people in the room had Bible verses and theological substance to back their insights. But the problem was for me was that I didn't trust the answers anymore. Not after I couldn't trust my own intuitions about our African partner, not after seeing someone as good and true as Brooke die young. And I said as much and maybe too much, and the room went quiet. And they decided to pray for me, which was a compassionate thing to do, but <laughs> they offered prayers about seeking truth and finding my way when I really needed someone to say with no intention to correct or fix or save, I sometimes feel that way too. Or those uncertainties are legitimate. Pat answers and prayers only confirmed my suspicion that doubt and discouragement were not welcome in that room. So it was satisfying to hear Steve admit such an unromantic truth. Steve pointed toward the water and the paths around it lined with cherry blossoms as if pink snow had descended. Just look at this for a moment, he had said quietly. And the view was glorious indeed. He said, you know as well as I do that underneath this beauty is the stench of a sausage-making factory. And Steve was referring to his favorite quote about politics, which is attributed to Otto von Bismarck, which is, laws are like sausages, it is better not to see them being made. And Steve had lived in Washington, D.C. for 20 years, and he knew well the underbelly of our nation's dealings. But, he continued, since the world is a tough place to live, we have to live with what is proximate. And I asked him what he meant by that. He said, people have wanted to make the world a better place for thousands of years, and it often seems like the world wins, and that makes it hard to keep going. And I did feel as though I was losing to someone or something. He said, you know too much now. You know that Africa, like Washington, is more complex 
and more disappointing than you had hoped it to be. Like a lot of people, you want to throw your hands in the air and give up so you can protect your heart from further wounds. And that was exactly what I wanted to do. But Steve continued. He said, the other option would be to choose to enter the world still, knowing what you know. And that means believing that it is better to do something than to do nothing. That justice somewhere is better than justice nowhere. And you can choose proximate mercy for a certain group of people, even though you know that as hard as you try, you will not be able to reach all that you set out to achieve in the world. Was this a defeatist manifesto or a compromise on the greater ideals? I really couldn't be sure then, and admittedly, I continue to wrestle with it today. But Steve was the first one to offer me a way to approach the world that was more realistic, more sustainable, and more responsible than the options I thought I had left. It was neither idealism nor cynicism. It was this third way. Choosing to live proximately does not mean that you've lowered your standards, Steve concluded. It means that you've decided to be honest about the world and still live by hope. And in my experience, I have found that true hope is always hard. It is not a passive wishing. It is an active exercise, a choice, an intention. Hope means giving up apathy and despair and instead embracing the uncertainty that terrifies you. It's the sacrifice of keeping your heart soft and it's the determination to stick with it even if you may not succeed. Why would you build a rain tank when you have lived a year under cloudless skies? Why would you teach your neighbors how to care for water when there is no water to care for? Why risk the fool by believing in a good God when the earth continues to stand dry and children die watching for rain? When I look at the deserts of Africa, sometimes I wonder if the tears of the grieving are the only drops of water that come. And I pray, but with disbelief. So when I was in high school, my classmates voted me most likely to devote my life to a lost cause. <laughs> and some days I take it as a compliment. <laughs> but the thing about lost causes is that they're only lost if you leave them behind. And because of resistance, you may want to write them off. But if you stay in there, and if you keep hoping in action, if not in feeling, you may discover they're not lost after all. You may discover that they are the most beautiful, extravagant examples of abundance in your life. You may start keeping your eyes open to causes that seem the most lost of all. But it is not easy, and it is a slowly-by-slowly slowly experience. And as I considered Steve's invitation to live proximately, my approach to the world and my work in it shifted. I understood the value of focusing on smaller places and particular changes. I wanted to live with the hard truth about human limitations while also believing that all of our work, even if we lose, even if it is proximate, is worth fighting for. And this way of looking at the world means admitting that at some point along our vocational journey, we will not feel the rush of serving as we once did.
but we will stay with it anyway. And it means admitting that the world is indeed a hard place to live, and it will likely break our heart if we keep engaging with it. But we will choose to hope anyway. It means admitting over and over, sometimes every day, yes, the pain of this journey is real. Let's keep climbing anyway. And when you choose to keep walking in a proximate direction, you define, you define success differently than before. And that means there's more to celebrate. And I've learned that truer triumph comes from the small than from the grandiose. Even as a young girl, I had a hunch that the God of the universe cared about the small things as much as the big ones. I saw that the small things mattered to Jesus, a mustard seed, a few loaves of bread, 12 friends. He was drawn not to the powerful or the successful, but to the meek and the humble and the oppressed. And that's where abundance flowed. So the faithful actions of loving one person at a time, working for justice one place at a time, providing water one village at a time, that is how we love the whole world. That is the third way. And flying back to Marsivit two years after the drought, I saw a different land. Day in and day out, the people of Marsivit had continued on with utter resilience to survive. They faithfully built the rain tanks, and they repaired the dams as dust devils swept across their land. And they developed health and hygiene clubs. They dug pit latrines, and they carried on with a commitment to improve their lives regardless of the circumstances that they could not control. And many people in the U.S., myself included, would consider an empty rain tank a failure. But with dignity, responsibility, and hope, these communities had pressed on. And the rains had finally come one October, and the skies filled the tanks and the dams with water as if it were manna from heaven. And because the people of Marsivit had worked throughout the drought to construct the catchment systems, they were able to collect every drop. It is not a perfect story, and it probably never will be. There are still stretches of drought and too many deaths and so many three steps forward, two steps back experiences. But look at the commitment they made to stay with it, with hope and resilience. And we are committed to Marsabit, to standing with them through the hardships, even when our expectations of success are not met. We've been walking with them now for nearly eight years, and are seeing small and slow change. And it will probably take another eight years to see just a little bit more. But in the beginning days of Bloodwater, I thought that the vision was mine to accomplish. And the truth is, it never was mine. Because the work of healing and redeeming a broken world belongs to God. And I have a small part to play, and I'm responsible for that part. But in the end, it's not on my shoulders. Our calling is to do the one more thing in front of us, and then the next. And if stepping into this calling means stepping into hard times, don't we want to be there still? The surprising truth about changing the world is that when we care for our part of the world, the God of heaven knits these small pieces together into something beautiful. But we are not called to change the world. We are called to love the world. And to love the world, I think we are the ones who must change. 
And each of you is writing a beautiful story with your life. And your job is to step into the world and to put into practice that which you have been given. To consider what it looks like to pursue justice in a slowly by slowly and committed way. How will you develop the spiritual, emotional, and physical tools to be agents of that slow yet desperately needed renewal? If we can remain faithful to our calling to care for the widow and the orphan and the thirsty and the oppressed, faithful through the stops and starts, faithful through desperate days on cloudless skies, faithful through the despair or disinterest, then we will see how our collective commitments will tear at a corner of the darkness. We will be a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Our people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. We will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. So finally, as we seek to faithfully love the world, slowly by slowly, let us bow down in wonder and watch what God will do. Thank you. Jenna will take some questions, and I have the mic so that the recorder will pick it up. Um, so in the years moving forward, what do you see Blood and Water Mission doing? Like, what are some objectives that it has as an organization? So we've been around for 11 years, and our initial goal was this 1,000 wells, to be able to provide 1,000 communities in Africa with access to safe water. And um, we achieved that, and we have been able to provide water for more than a million people. What we've learned over time um, through our own experiences is that the best way we can partner in Africa is to support the small grassroots organizations that are doing great work there. So we've really worked on building our ability to come alongside those organizations. And so uh, we're focused on providing grants to these organizations in a way that um, build their capacity so they can be there for the long haul. In the future, this is what's crazy. With AIDS, um, you know, HIV 30 years ago was the death sentence. And um, you know, the, the place that I visited on a Janterm trip in South Africa, uh, we visited an AIDS hospice because hospice was the answer and sort of the best answer for HIV at the time because it was just a place to die in dignity. The crazy thing about what happens when people are committed to seeing something change in the world is that it's no longer a death sentence and it's actually something that even people living in sub-Saharan Africa can live a flourishing life with a chronic disease. And so Bloodwater is really committed in the places where we've been working to ensure that we can help be a part of that end of AIDS. So like in one community in Western Kenya, where we've been working, we've had 97 babies born to HIV-positive mothers this year, and all 97 of those babies are negative, and that's remarkable. So we're on a mission to being able to help in those particular areas where we are to ensure that we can um, get the rate down. Um, and then we kind of, on accident, provided water for a million people. That wasn't our goal, but it was a sweet surprise to realize that that was possible. So we're on a mission for the next million. Another question? because I have one, so. You speak to a lot of colleges, students at a lot of different colleges. Can you tell us a little bit about what you hope for, what you expect from this generation of college students? Um, my hope is that 
I think one of the biggest, and I just talked about it, but I think one of the biggest um, dangers um, to the student uh, in development uh, is, is the expectation of quick results in all parts of life. And, um, and I think being able, my hope in the places, in the Whitworths that I've been at, um, what's been encouraging is to continue to meet with students who are earnest about understanding um, what it means to live a flourishing life. And a lot of times that means to be countercultural against the, the speed with which um, the world is uh, tempting us to go. Um, and I just, my hope is that um, that you all will continue to um, value relationships with each other and um, with those that you're learning from and in whatever vocation you step into, that, um, that it is relational and that it's about being a part of a community, um, that you would give yourselves grace um, in the question of what are you going to do after college uh, because I think that you all have great passion. If you're here at Whitworth, you already have, you don't even know it, but you're already like built to ask these big, deep questions about vocation, but to also give yourself permission to say, I don't know yet, and that that's okay, and that you don't have to have it all figured out by the time that you uh, walk out of these doors, and that, um, that you would be this uh, generation that can hold on to hope in the midst of a very cynical landscape. And there are a gazillion reasons out there to not try to do anything anymore. And there's so much information out there that will tell you why it's impossible to reach for something because they've already proven that it's not possible or whatever it is. Or there's limitations because of the career track that you need to step into or whatever. But to not, to not lose sight of the ability to be creative in your vocation and to, um, to really help in... I don't know, cultivating human flourishing in whatever it is that you do. Can you talk some about your experiences as the perspective of an NGO with working with the governments, the local governments and local uh, population in Africa, and if there's skepticism coming in as a, as a foreign NGO to say, like, hey, we're here to help, we, mm -hmm. we promise, like, we're not like all those other ones. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging landscape, and I don't think we have it figured out in any way. I think what we learned, um, some the hard way, some the easy way, um, is that um, partnership is a really good way to go. Um, I had grandiose ideas of how we would achieve the Thousand Miles Project, and they were terrible ideas. They're terrible ideas, but they were my, you know, one worldview option of, and I've never actually been in these places, and I don't know these communities. And so I think what um, was really helpful was knowing how much I didn't know that put me in a posture of having to learn and listen. I was saying this earlier to some of the students. I actually felt like my Jan term experiences taught me that because it wasn't... Um, uh, a lot of my first international experiences weren't in going and fixing or doing. It was all about come and see and learn and listen. And, um, and so I think that posture was actually very helpful for me in the startup of Bloodwater because um, it's uh, arrogant and naive to think that, you know, this little idea that we had even with a rock band could make a difference in a landscape that we didn't even know very well. So I think what we worked really hard to do was to just get to know the agencies, the organizations, we would meet with like a world vision and say, 
you know, we're just starting out. You're a huge organization. If you could start all over today, what would you do differently? And, you know, just trying to understand where are the gaps that existed and what could we do to help fill that. I'm a terrible person to say this because it's such a hypocritical thing to do. But, like, the world actually doesn't need a whole bunch of new nonprofits to be started up, says the girl who started a nonprofit. Um, but, the, <laughs> but it's really looking at how do you fuel um, the capacity of what's already there and, um, and serve that. So we, were, we work at such a small level that we're not... We're not interfacing at, at such a significant scale. We're about a four, three and a half, four million dollar organization. There's obviously a lot of need in the work that you're doing. And so I'm just curious of how you found like a work slash life balance in the midst of that and not feeling overwhelmed and just burning out in the midst. That's a really good question. And um, I haven't quite figured it out. But what I have learned is that it's fairly irresponsible to think that my life is so important uh, on behalf of where all the needs are in Africa that it's worth sacrificing my human relationships and commitments in my own life. And I've had to navigate that over the last 10 years um, in trying to figure out how do you manage these other identities of being a friend, a daughter, a sister, a wife, and now a mother um, amidst all of the other uh, competing and very appealing nonprofit leader identity. And, um, and so I would say that um, I, I learned the hard way about what burnout really looks like. And I think I attribute it to personal martyrdom and missionalism, which I think is not healthy. I think I actually started living into this idea that I could change the world if I just put enough energy and time into it, if I sacrificed enough. And, um, and it's, it's no good to anyone if you're advocating for a human flourishing in one community but sacrificing it on the other. So I think that, I think that doing good in the world or whatever the, the vocation for each of us is um, at least what I'm learning now at 33 is that it's so much more about seasons. Um, and I didn't like that idea, but I'm in it and I am accepting it. And that there is a season that you guys are in and that you will be in for a little bit longer that is so untethered and that you have so much ability to say yes to not just the people within your life, but externally into the world. And we need that. We need people who can say, yes, I can go be there, and I can give up a lot to make it happen. Um, but then there will be other seasons where, um, like my uh, instance, so I'm married, I've been married for eight years, I have a year and a half year old son, and I've come to realize the hard way that Bloodwater could have another executive director. But Jude, my son, doesn't get another mom. And um, so navigating that and being honest about that, um, but also realizing like these next five, seven years might be a little bit different than what my last 10 have been, um, but there's something beautiful in that as well. And my husband has done the same thing. It's not just the woman thing. My husband has actually also stepped away from his really phenomenal altruistic job um, to be able to leave more space. So it's, it's an ebb and flow. 
but I think like I have to live out. I'm just telling you guys all slowly by slowly, go slowly by slowly and pace yourself and expect you know, these ebbs and flows. And I think that's true for our lives of like, I thought it was, I gotta achieve these things for blood water now. And now I'm realizing like my calling is the whole of my life to be able to move the needle a little bit, but it's going to, but I want to have the whole of my life to do it and not at the cost of like burning out so fast that I'm cynical, divorced, and like my kids hate me or something, you know? So it's like, how do you sustain that along the way? So it's like, how do you, what do you do once the idealism is gone? How do you stay with that? What do you do once the, um, once the other commitments come into your life that are beautiful um, but also require trade-offs? Ooh, that's deep. I know that Jenna's going to stay and talk with those of you who would like to talk to her individually. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys.